welcome everybody. How are we all? We're good? We're very socially distanced, aren't we? Which is a good thing, I suppose. We've got to do the right thing, don't we? Uh, welcome to everybody online. Great to have you with us. Uh, remember to like and share and comment and engage. It's really important. That's how the gospel goes out. This is not about Hills Baptist becoming famous, but it's about the gospel. Isn't that right, Troy? That's why we're here. So like, share, comment, send it around. If you're in this room right now, if you want to hop on your phone and do that, you're welcome to do that too. Promise you won't, I won't get, uh, tell you off. So as you can see, I have some props today. Uh, we're going to look at this teaching from Hebrews uh, and we're going to use science. <laughs> I rang Luke and Landy Starzak during the week. I was like, guys, I've got this idea. And then Landy's like, oh yeah, I've seen a video of someone do that. And I thought, no, I thought it was like a brand new idea that no one had ever done before. Um, but God's good and he's going to do some great things. So uh, for those of you who uh, haven't been around for a while, we are in the book of Hebrews. Who's enjoying Hebrews? It's a magnificent letter. Uh, it is a meaty, rich wonderful, incredible letter uh, that is well worth exploring. And really the basic premise that we've been looking at is that Jesus is supreme over all things. So when we dive into these really complicated theological moments within the text, fundamentally there is a simplicity to what's being said. Jesus is supreme. So here's what we're going to do today is we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 9. Just before we get there, you'll notice last week Brian spoke on 5 and 7. Uh, this week I'm doing 9 and 10. And then next week Simon's going back to 6 and 8. And the reason for that is, is because Brian talked about the high priest and the law Today we're going to look at sacrifice and tabernacle, and those two things will, hopefully you'll see, will flow well from one to the other, and then Simon will come back and talk about covenant, and as he talks about covenant, hopefully that wraps everything up and we get to a point where we're like, you know what I'm saying? That's the goal, a moment. Um, so Hebrews 9, I will confess something. When I first started preaching, someone told me, uh, never read huge, big, long chunks of scripture when you preach, because if you do that, people will get lost, they'll get distracted, and they'll forget what the whole point of the word is. Well, I'm not following that rule today. We're breaking that rule. The reason we're breaking that rule is because this is the inspired word of God, uh, and it's amazing. But I want us to see what the author wants us to see. I want to let the text just flow as we read, there's going to be some stuff that some of you are just going to be like, but that's okay because we'll come back and explain it. So this is the seed. May the seed settle on our soul. My heart is that I would simply just water that and that the Spirit would do what only the Spirit can do and make it grow, take root and, uh, and do some wonderful things. So that's what we're going to do. We are going to get stuck into a serious amount of text today. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read verse 1 to 14, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 10 and also read 1 to 14, and then after we've done that, halfway through the message, we'll look at the end of chapter 10. Is that good? Yeah. Who's with me? Yeah. All right, pens out, focus on, get ready. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, worship in the earthly tabernacle. Someone say tabernacle. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle, someone say tabernacle, 
was set up in its first room with a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in details now. I love that verse. Oh, it's so good. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. There is a meat on that. This is an illustration of the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. So the law, the sacrificial system, was not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Hold on to that thought. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. They're religion pointing to something else. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean, outwardly clean, outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences, that means inwardly clean, from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. All right, let's jump over to chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you. You pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. 
he set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If you have not underlined that in your Bible, you need to do that. You need to get your yellow highlighter out. You need to highlight that. Then you need to get your pen out. You need to make a little star sign next to it so you remember it and you come back to it over and over and over again. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow. What a word. Friends, if you are someone who loves taking notes, you've got a big leather-bound Bible and you'll see yourself as a fairly academic sort, you could choose to write a title for this message called Presence Through Sacrifice. But if in reading those things, that title doesn't resonate with you and you just heard a lot of words that left you thinking, what the? You could choose to turn to your neighbour right now and announce a very different title, which is slightly less orthodox, and you could simply say, Tabawat. Tabawat, that's the title of this message today, Tabawat. Tab, uh, well, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would speak boldly to us today through your word. We thank you that you have sacrificed once for all. You are the perfect righteous sacrifice. You are the true tabernacle. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would bring clarity to our minds. We pray that you would reveal truth to us, that you would open our eyes to catch a revelation of the true gospel, the love of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And together with one loud voice, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So friends, we live in a very modern world. In fact, I would say it's a postmodern world, a postmodern culture. Um, Just the other other day during the week, uh, my... Sister-in-law, Joe's sister and her little daughter Lucy came over. Lucy is a four-year-old. She's a beautiful little girl. And Joe and Leah, they were in the kitchen making bliss balls. Um, We didn't have any of those to share today, but they are delicious. And uh, so Lucy was wanting to play with Uncle Dave. And so we were doing things. I was actually trying to do a few things on my laptop. And Lucy walked over and she's like, Uncle Dave, photos and videos. I want to watch photos and videos. So she comes up to my laptop. And she's pressing, you know, the, the, the Apple photo video icon. And she's pressing on the photo icon, trying to get it to work. And I'm like, it's not going to work, Luce. That, that's not how this, this works. I don't have a touchscreen uh, laptop. She's like, Uncle Dave, it's broken. It's broken. I'm like, no, it's not broken. It just doesn't work. She goes, no, it does work that way. And it's broken. It's not working. And it's just getting really fresh. I'm like, no, Lucy, you don't understand. Just chill out for a second and I'll show you how it works. But she was like, no, it's broken. This is what it should do. And she ends up having this, you know, real diva moment and just like, oh, just huffs and puffs and walks off. As if she's like, I don't understand it. Therefore, it isn't important. It's not relevant to me. And it's old and insignificant. I don't understand this technology. It's old and insignificant. So therefore, I won't engage. I think sometimes we're like that with the Word of God and with uh, Scripture. Because I think sometimes 
We read stuff like we just read and we're like, that's gone straight over my head. Like there's words in there that I didn't even know existed and you're not speaking Spanish, so there's something going on here. And we read the scripture and we're like, that is an ancient word from an ancient text that has, I do not understand and therefore has zero relevance to my life. And so what we do is when we get to these passages, we just sort of skim over them until we get to the famous ones that we've seen on bumper stickers on cars or on the scripture mint in Kurong, and we're like, okay, there it is. Oh, do not give up meeting together. Boom. But we actually miss all the stuff behind that verse that is famous. And friends, I want to say today, just because something is old, just because something is difficult to understand, does not mean it is irrelevant. We're living in this fast-paced, me-centric culture, and this word is counter-cultural, but it is so vital and so important and so significant, and we must not fall into the trap of just because it's difficult to grasp, of just going, well, therefore it's broken. Therefore it's not worth investing and therefore it's not worth trying to understand. Because if we do that, we're going to miss the meat. We can't understand the fullness of the gospel. We can't understand what Jesus has done unless we first grasp the significance of the very things that he came to fulfill. And when we understand what he has fulfilled, when we start to grasp the old covenant, all of a sudden what Jesus has done becomes like, whoa! Instead of it being like, yep, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, good on him, he died for me. Correct. I remember being in a year 11 Christian studies class with a bunch of kids and I said to them, you know, these kids have been raised in the church, and I said to them, why did Jesus die? And not one of them could answer it. And in that moment, I realized this is a significant thing in our culture because we can say, and I was the same when I was young. I was like, Jesus died for my sins. But I couldn't actually articulate why. What was the significance of that? Oh, you know, to get me to heaven. Like there's something so much deeper and richer. What, like we need to understand the sacrificial system. We need to understand this concept of tabernacle. And then the gospel comes alive. And it, instead of just coming alive, it, it takes root within us and it changes us. It transforms us. It becomes like consuming. And it becomes this passion inside of us. And we're like, people need to know this. This is amazing. And so that's why we're studying Hebrews. Because there's a whole lot, as we read it, there's a whole lot of, as we talked about, assumed knowledge and we just want to come and, and just tack onto that just a little bit today that we would not be too modern to dive into this text. You know, I said to some of the guys this morning, I was like, the other, last week I was sitting in a cafe drinking a latte, hot spotting from my iPhone to my MacBook so I could download a commentary on my Kindle whilst also checking and sending emails. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And like some of you are like, wow, and others of you are like, bro, <laughs> of course. <laughs> like I get openly mocked by people in our team about being old because I'm terrible at social media. 
You know, this is the world that we live in. It's fast-paced, it's media-centered, but please, let's not forsake the old because it's different and difficult at times. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dive into the old, and here's what we're going to have a look at. We're going to look at what is this tabernacle, why this sacrifice, why sacrificial system, how is Jesus greater than all of this stuff, And what does it mean for my life right here, right now, today? Is that good? All right, so to help us do that, we've got to go back. We're going to go back. I'm going to tell the story of God through science. We're going to have a look. And we're going to try and unpack this idea. What is the tabernacle? What is sacrifice? So without further ado, let's do this. This is going to be up on the screen so you can see it for those of you in the back. So um, hopefully you grasp it. In the beginning was God. We put it around the wrong way, Adzi. (laughs) We'll go this way. (laughs) In the beginning was God. And God is perfect and pure and wonderful and glorious. And the biblical word for this is holy. He is without spot. He is without blemish. There is no fault in him. He is perfectly righteous in every way. This is God. Triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. Self-sustaining. He is the essence of life and light. This is God. The God, our, this great God, created He created the heavens and the earth, and on the sixth day, he did something remarkable, something extraordinary that we so easily forget as being extraordinary. He created us. He created us. He created humanity. He created man and woman. This great God created us, and we were made in his image. We were not God, but we were like God. God, we were righteous, we were, we were pure, we were naked and unashamed, it says. We were dwelling with God. This is how he made us. And friends, this is our first hint. This is the first clue of this question of what is a tabernacle. A tabernacle, the word tabernacle literally means presence. It means the place where God abides with his people. The tabernacle is the place where heaven invades earth, where God's space and our space collide. And not just collide, are immersed, are engaged. This is the tabernacle. And God made us and he dwelt with us in a place called Eden. You see, when the tabernacle, when we are with God in perfect unity, it is Eden. That means paradise. It is perfect. It is glorious. This is why God created. Not so that we, like paradise is not a palm tree with bananas and coconuts and warm beaches and nice, that's not paradise. Paradise is what we were created for, which was to have relational union with God, to tabernacle, to be in his presence, to dwell together with God. And so we're in Eden. This is what is going on, this beautiful, perfect, wonderful 
relationship, us in his image, not him, but uniquely like him. And the difference was that God is spirit, but we are flesh. You know, fascinatingly, God, who is three in one, puts a picture of himself in us by making us body, mind, and spirit. Three in one, interconnected. Three in one. So unlike God, we have flesh. But then something happens to this tabernacle, this moment right here, this beautiful dwelling, is we're tempted by this thing called sin and death. You see, God had promised us, he'd said, I'm going to give you everything. He says, you're going to have everything in this garden. It's all glorious. It's all good. It's all yours. Just don't touch that one thing. Just don't go there because you need to understand who you are. You might be made in my image, but you are not me. You're subservient to me. And so therefore, I need to just give you this. You need to know what love requires choice. And so I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to make you uh, have an opportunity just to recognize how amazing I am and humble yourself to me. Don't touch this. This is not good for you. If you touch, this is you. Don't believe that you can possibly be me. No, 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 no. Just be humble and recognize what I have done and live in the beauty of this tabernacle. But what do we do? We sinned. We disobeyed a holy God and the fascinating thing happened. Tainted. See, sin has a habit of staining the soul. Not just an outward thing, but an inward change in who we are. Because humanity... We had dwelt with God. We had his very breath, which brought us life. He said he formed us from the dust of the earth and he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life and we became a living being. And so ancient cultures understood something. The Jewish people had a deep reverential understanding that the very life force of God actually dwelt and flowed through the veins of our body. And so there was this deep connection between blood and life. As long as blood was flowing through us, this blood was our life. But when we sin, something happened to that beautiful life that dwelt within us. This eternal union with God was severed. Instead of the life of God running through our veins, now the death of sin ran through our veins. Death had consumed us. Sin had consumed us. And so we have a problem And the problem is that God is holy and we are not. And that which is holy and pure and righteous cannot dwell with that which is not for one of two reasons. Either if you take something impure and you pour it into something that's pure, what happens to that which is pure? It becomes impure. But God's God. There's no way that a holy God can become unholy. Are you with me? It's impossible. So what we see in every attempt that we made to try and get to God, it wouldn't work. He can't be tainted. And because he can't 
be tainted, it meant that for us to be with him, we were consumed. He was not tainted. No, the death within us had to die because that can't dwell with God. So we had a significant issue because God longs to dwell with us. He created us for tabernacle, but because of our sin, we can no longer tabernacle tabernacle with God. Try and say tabernacle too many times quickly. It throws you. We can't be in union with God. So we're broken. There's a problem with the creation of ideal. But here's the best thing about our God is that you would think that God in this moment, who's pre-existent, who's just living in his beautiful triune community of Father, Son and Spirit, completely at peace with himself, could easily have just said, oh, well, stuff you. You made that choice. Good on you. I'm done with you. And he could have just left us to the death that existed in us. But that's not our God. That's not our God. No, God pursued us. He pursued us. In our sin, in our death, in our wandering, he pursued us. And this is the story of the scripture as God chose a man named Abraham and he said he made a covenant with him. You're going to have to come back next week to understand covenant. And he chose Abraham and Abraham became the father of a nation called Israel, the people of God. And Israel went through a whole journey of falling away from God and God drawing them back and falling away from God and God drawing them back. And ultimately they end up in a place of slavery in Egypt for 400 years until another bloke called Moses hears the call of God and God delivers them from slavery into freedom. And friends, all of it is a picture of our eternal reality. The reason it happened is because God wanted everyone to know the problem we have, that we are enslaved to sin and death. And the only way out of that is if God delivers us. That's why all of this happens. And so we see this story of us and we're now, God takes Israel out of slavery and brings them to a mountain. And at a mountain, he establishes something significant that we learnt about last week called the law. And the law, friends, is basically God's rules of engagement. He's like, remember, what did I create you for? Tabernacle. I created you to dwell with me, to be in union and relationship with me. That's what I created you for, intimacy. But there's a problem, that can't happen. So I'm going to give you a way by which you can engage because I'm not content just to leave you on your own. I long to dwell with my people. So he established this system, the law. Rules of engagement. How can we as a sinful people engage with a holy God? And fascinatingly, what we see here is this crazy, weird, strange and wonderful thing where we see the tabernacle, which is a tent, and an altar on which the people were to sacrifice pure, spotless animals. And you're like, what the heck? (laughs) What does that have to do with anything? Why would you do that? And it's fascinating because when you look at this tent, this tabernacle, the place where God would dwell and seek to do relationship with human beings, 
what we see in this moment is that the tabernacle and the setup, it had different levels, which we read about in verse in chapter 9 at the beginning there, where there's the Holy of Holies, which is like the separated part of the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, where it was said that God chose to dwell. And there was this massive curtain, this thick, like crazy curtain, which overlapped. There was no, you can't just poke your head through the curtain and be like, peekaboo God. Like there's no doing that because this thing's all overlapping. It's impossible. It's saying, God and then everyone else. He's saying, you're separated from me. But he paints a picture. He says, you know what? A day's coming when I am going to fix this. And to show you how I'm going to fix it, I'm going to put a system in place which will, will reveal it to you. You see, remember what we said about blood. Blood represented life. And so he said, I'm going to bring, you can take a pure spotless animal and what you can do is you can shed the blood of that animal. And what will happen as you shed the blood of that animal, that purity of blood, that life of the animal will come and it will stand before you and cover you so that you might be able to relate to me. Your death would be placed on the animal and in its place, in your place, the animal would be placed for you. So we see life covering death so that we might be able to engage with God. How are we going with Theology 101? You with me? We're good? This is called, like a, a theologian would say, this is making propitiation. Someone say propitiation. Isn't that a great word? Making propitiation for our sin. It's about covering. But guess what? Here's the thing, and here's what we're going to read in a second in Hebrews. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to say, is that while this covered us for a moment, while this cleansed the outside, it was incapable of fixing the issue. It was impossible for the blood of animals to take away our sin. It was impossible for the blood of animals to fix the deepest issue, which is the death that runs through our veins. Impossible. And so as the author of Hebrews wants us to see, this is a system, but the system is a symbol. The law is not the solution to the death issue. No, the law is a symbol pointing us towards the way in which God would deal with the issue once and for all, re-establishing the tabernacle. So we see this at the tabernacle, which is the tent, and we see it later at the temple, which is just a glorified tent, just a beautiful building. But all of it had the same creation ideal. It was supposed to remind us that God's here, we're separated, but the the heart of God is to bring us from death to life, to bring us back to Eden, to bring us back from the wilderness into paradise, which is the presence of God. And so what he says is, this can never do. And let's go to our scripture because it will reveal something to us when we talk about the wise sacrifice. You see, so as the blood is spilled, listen to what the author says. He says, this is, an, this is uh, verse 9, Hebrews 9 verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time 
indicating that the gifts and sacrifices offered were not able to clear the conscience of a worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations. They are just religion. Hebrews 10 verse 1, the law is only a shadow of what is coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Note, all of this was pointing us towards one true fact that presence could only come through sacrifice and not through the blood of animals, but through the sacrifice of the Son. Because only a holy, pure, righteous person could redeem an unrighteous person. So Christ came in the flesh, the fullness of God. The fullness of God dwelt in human flesh. God took on blood. The fullness of God dwelt in Christ. Friends, Jesus is the true tabernacle. God dwelling with humanity. This is the picture. This is how we access God. This is what it's all about. Jesus is the true tabernacle, but in order to bring us from death to life, a price had to be paid. Propitiation had to be made. He had to cover us. Jesus, the life that flowed through his veins had to be spilled so that the death which flowed through our veins could be removed. And this is what we see because he is God, because he is holy, because he is righteous and magnificent, because he is who he is. When Jesus' blood was poured out for us, something remarkable happened. Whereas the blood of an animal could not transform us, the blood of Christ availed for us once and for all. Someone should be shouting hallelujah. His blood covered and didn't just cover us outwardly, but cleansed us inwardly once and for all. That's why we needed a sacrifice. Because what was broken had to be made right because God is a tabernacling God and that which was holy must dwell with holiness. You cannot have brokenness and holiness dwelling together. You cannot have darkness and light. Light will always consume darkness. So we had to be brought from death to life. And in so doing, in this death, reclaim the creation intention of God that we could tabernacle. But friends, it's only just starting. There's something so much cooler. Because Jesus suffered death on our behalf, but because of who he is. Sin and death couldn't stick. Oh, come on, somebody. (laughs) Sin and death couldn't stick. It couldn't taint him. It couldn't 
like, it couldn't consume him. It couldn't transform him. It couldn't keep him in the grave, friends, because he is the author of life. He is life itself. And so sin and death, when it, when it took over him, he was like, bam, I've got you covered, bro. And so he took sin and death to the grave and he left sin and death in the grave and he rose from the dead, dwelling eternally, now seated at the right hand, right hand for you of the Father, and we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Come on, someone. This is our state. Because of what he has done, we are now seated with Christ on high. He is at the right hand of the Father. And what do we see? What has happened here? Tabernacle. Touch somebody, say tabernacle. We see tabernacle. We see God dwelling with men. God re-establishing the Eden ideal. This is why he created. This is why he made. This was his plan all along that we would be brought from death to life, that the son would be glorified through his sacrifice to redeem humanity from the curse of sin and death so that death would no longer have mastery, would no longer have power, so that death is conquered by life forever. 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 Oh, this is how 2 Corinthians 5 puts it. It said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. The righteousness of God. Galatians 4, but when the time had fully come, God waited. He sent his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. He fixed the issue of sin and death once and for all. And friends, this is what Hebrews is all about. This is when it's talking tabernacle and it's talking sacrifice and it's talking a buttered staff of Moses and it's talking an atonement cover and a mercy seat and it's carrying on about these words and we can look at it and go, that's over my head, I'm not going to worry about it. No, 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 no. This is what it's saying. It's the very depth and essence of the greatest thing that's ever happened in the entirety of eternity. This is what the angels sit around the throne and just like, oh my gosh. The Bible says that they long to look onto these. The angels can't even grasp it. Angels are like, what the heck have you done, God? And we're just like, yes, like Jesus died for my sins. <laughs> Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. He set us free. And whom the Son sets free, they are free indeed. Come on. How good is God? This is, our, this is why Jesus is greater. Because the tabernacle was just a foretaste. The tent was a foretaste. The temple in all its splendor and wonder and glory was a foretaste. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He was greater than all of it. A sacrifice was a shadow of what was coming. Jesus is the ultimate price paid for us. He is greater. Now, David, great. Thanks for the theology. What does it have to do with my life? Everything. Everything. Let's go to uh, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 10, verse 19 and 23. And I want to show you just two things. Hebrews 9, 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly 
clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, clear and cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God. No longer do we sit outside the tabernacle watching a priest do it for us. When Jesus died, that curtain which separated God from us was ripped in half. The separation was gone so that we might enter in and have union and relationship and engagement with a holy God that the tabernacle might be restored and we have a clear conscience in doing it. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And when Satan comes to whisper and wants to sow doubt in your mind and tell you you're unworthy and that you can't possibly be loved by God, look what you did yesterday. Look what you thought about last night. Look how you responded last week. You just turn to him and say, enough. I have confidence in the finished work of Christ. It is not about me. I couldn't get there anyway. This is why Islam fails. This is why Buddhism fails. This is why Hinduism fails. This is why every other worldview falls short. Is because all of them are us attaining to God, which could never happen. This is the hope that we have. This is the glory that we have in Christ. Hebrews 10, 19. So how should we act? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, because he can't just say a therefore without giving theology. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what should we do? Draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. We have confidence. And this is what I came to say. Band, you can come up and we're going to close. But this is what I came to tell you this morning, what I want to remind you this morning, what I'm praying God will embed within your heart Whatever you're going through, whatever struggle you are facing in faith, whatever doubt is being sown into your life, you have confidence in Christ. You have a clear conscience in Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. Walk in the confidence of the inward reality. Walk in the confidence of the inward reality. And so what are you supposed to do? That's why it says, do not give up meeting together, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Because if you do this by yourself without anyone else, the enemy is really good at whispering in your ear and convincing you that you're someone you're not. 
But when you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who are speaking about your true identity and speaking up to you and declaring the goodness of God over your life and what he has done for you, all of a sudden you are strengthened in faith. That's why we don't give up meeting together. Not because we want to build big churches. We want to have a full auditorium. No, that's rubbish. It's because we want to see sons and daughters of God living as sons and daughters of God. Living in the call, living in the fulfilled promise of God. Living in victory in Jesus' name. And so here's how he finishes. This is how the author finishes this section before he moves on to talk about living by faith. Do not throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. Friends, don't throw away your confidence. Don't leave your hope at the door. Don't forsake the great thing that God has done in your life. Hold fast to that confidence. Hold fast to that hope. Encourage one another. Stir and spur one another on toward the love and good deeds. Have patience, hold fast, persevere, press on, run the race. He says it over and over again in a billion different ways. Keep going. Keep going. It's too great a thing to just neglect. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. It is the very means by which we enter the tabernacling presence of God. Persevere, have patience in having done the will of God, which is sitting and thanking Him and glorifying Him for what He has done, you will receive the promise. You will receive it because He is faithful. It's coming. The promise is coming. It cannot be taken from you. You will receive it. And you might be looking around your world, you might be looking around your life and saying, well, I don't see the promise of God. I don't see this promise fulfilled. I don't have hope. I don't have joy. I don't have these things. Stop looking at your experience and start looking at the finished work of the cross. Don't live by feelings, live by faith. Because it is done. It is done. And there's a blood-stained cross that stands in the middle of time and it points to this reality over and over and over again. Hold fast. Press on. Persevere. How good is our God? Let's stand to our feet. And I would love to pray for us. And I feel particularly on my heart this morning to pray for anyone here who is perhaps wrestling with that sense of confidence, who's wrestling with that, that sense of surety. And so I'm going to invite everyone just to close their eyes for a moment. And if that's you and it's resonating with you and you just need just a word of prayer and you just feel like being spurred on, I'm going to invite you just to pop your hand up wherever you are right now. Amen. Hallelujah. You can pop that hand right down. And we're going to pray. And then I'm going to invite you I don't want to embarrass you, but I invite you after this as we're chatting, find someone, tell them where you're at and then do the life together. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you right now.
for the finished work of Christ on the cross. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a tabernacling God. We thank you that you are the God who comes to us and dwells with us and loves us. We thank you that you are the God who chose to suffer death that we might know life. We thank you that you are the God whom death could not contain or have mastery over. And so you rose from the dead. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. And we thank you for the surety of that salvation. And we just declare right now confidence over each and every one of these brothers and sisters. We declare confidence in the clear conscience that they bear. We declare hope into them. We declare joy into them, that they can have joy in the midst of sorrow, that they they might not be happy, but they have joy, that in the midst of turmoil, they can have peace. Father God, we thank you that you are the God of peace and we love you and we praise you. We just declare this now, just a tangible touch of your spirit to assure us of our confidence in you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. You're so good. You're so good. And so we're going to respond and we're going to worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name and all God's saints said, Amen. Let's sing. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, Find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.